0: Welcome to the Weekly Standard Podcast. I'm your host, Michael Graham. One of the people who watches foreign policy very, very closely for the Weekly Standard is the Weekly Standard's Bill Crystal, of course. Bill, thanks so much for your time. We appreciate it.
1: Hey, Michael. How are you?
0: Uh, I'm a little nervous. This thing that looked like it was just going to be kind of a North Assetia all over again, where Russia ends up technically in control of a little sliver of land, now may be something bigger now that the Ukrainian Black Fleet has been ordered to surrender to the Russians, and the Russians have approved a declaration of war for all of Ukraine. I, am I wrong to be nervous?
1: No, you're absolutely right. I mean, aggressors tend to take the lesson. Uh, if one thing works, they do it again, and they usually do it again and add something. And you know they'll keep pushing until they're pushed back. And so I, I think Putin's lessons so far, whether it's from Georgia in 2008, and that was, to be fair, under Bush, an exhausted Bush administration, which pushed back some, but then kind of gave up, right. but certainly, in the last five years under obama, uh the lessons that Putin and others around the world have have learned is they can pretty much get away with uh, they've gotten away with everything so far let's say and and so they keep trying for more and I agree people kind of have this complacent assumption well, it's only Crimea and there're Russians there, and it's sort of not going to be bigger than that but I, I I hope that's the case, but I don't think it's clearly the case, and I'm not sure that the signals we 've sent so far would convince Putin that he shouldn't test uh, and push push as far as he can go
0: What was your thought over the weekend when you saw the White House was telling uh, journalists that it was the the entrance of the Russians was an invited arrival and, and not a contested arrival is that Is that the new euphemism for invasion now an uncontested arrival?
1: Yeah, isn't it wonderful? I mean, well, Kerry backed off from that, I guess, a little on Sunday and sounded more hawkish than whoever that anonymous administration official was on on Friday. They they started off making excuses if it wasn't serious. At least Kerry understood it serious. But now right. the question is whether there'll be actions that match, uh, you know, match match his uh, his rhetoric. I mean, I was very struck that Kerry made it sound like the reset policy to Russia, which was trumpeted with great. Enthusiasm and, uh, you know, as if it was a really important moment when Hillary Clinton did it right at the beginning of the Obama administration. Vice President Biden, President Obama, they all talked. remember being in Munich at this national security conference they have every year in February. So this was just this was February 2009, a month into the Obama administration. And Vice President Biden spoke there. And the reset with Russia, that was the thing that was really their top initiative at that point, apart from getting out of Iraq, I guess. And, um, and then Kerry was asked about us yesterday and sort of, well, Al, what we said, we've kind of beyond that. But it's worth reminding people just how fundamentally wrong the Obama administration, and including Secretary of State Hillary Clinton, was about this extremely important geopolitical question, not like Russia's just a trivial thing to get wrong. And they got it fundamentally wrong, and they've been unwilling to admit that they got it wrong. And that's not just a matter of eating crow. You know, that's a matter of re- reconsidering policies, and they haven't done that either. So it's really bad, what's happening. I think you're right to be alarmed. One other point, Eric Edelman, uh, who was the number three in the Defense Department under Bush and before that, a, uh, ambassador to Turkey and Finland, foreign service officer, very thoughtful guy, is writing a piece for the Weekly Standard this week. We just talked about it this morning. And he made one very good point I hadn't heard made elsewhere, which is, you remember Ukraine had nuclear weapons on its soil when the Soviet Union broke up. That's right. And part of this deal, the Budapest Agreement, I think it was called, uh, was that Ukraine gave up those nuclear weapons, and that was a victory for nonproliferation. Mm-hmm. It was done under the Clinton administration. It was bipartisan. People supported it. What lesson is the world taking if Ukraine, having given up the nukes and having been, in effect, guaranteed or at least told that it would its territorial integrity would be respected, that it wouldn't be victimized because it gave up these right. weapons of mass destruction, what lesson does the world take when Ukraine gives up these weapons, goes through a rocky couple of decades, but basically, you know, certainly a non-aggressive country and mostly democratic country. Uh, and then Russia, a nuclear power, uh, invades part of Ukraine, and everyone sits there and does nothing. I just think everyone around the world looks at that and thinks, well, you know what? If if Ukraine had nuclear weapons, this might not be happening. And it just leads uh, up to the kind of nuclear proliferation that's unbelievably dangerous, So again, people are not thinking hard enough about what the implications of Putin getting away with this are, how dangerous that makes, how much more dangerous even that makes the world.
0: Uh, Bill, you mentioned the uh, lesson regarding the nukes themselves and the idea that there was going to be this protective umbrella from Britain and the United States. But if the person behind that umbrella is Barack Obama, does it matter what assurances are and what does it say to the world about America's willingness to stand with friends if you can go from an agreement with one president to another president that, quite frankly, I don't think anyone in the world expects President Obama to do anything.
1: I think, look, that's right. And, you know, Ukraine is not a member of NATO, so we don't have a a binding national security kind of obligation Mm -hmm. to Ukraine. But there are NATO members right next door to Russia who must be very worried now. And one thing I think President Obama has to do, is say, look, okay, I've been weak. I mean, won't say it this way, but in effect, send the message well, maybe I've been weak in some cases where it's kind of optional whether we should act. But in cases where there's uh, treaty obligations, we're going to uh, follow our treaty obligations, whether it's with NATO or with Japan. And um, I would say that, you know, NATO members now, like the Baltic states and some of the East European states, um, are worried. I wouldn't say this, I know this, I've heard this from people who've talked to people from those countries worried about how seriously uh, the Obama administration takes those U.S. commitments. So minimally, as a result of what Putin has done, a reassertion of those commitments, some uh, activities with NATO are very, very important, I think. Um, Yeah, I mean, it's just one of the many ways. But but you're right, again, the broader point I think that you began by making, and I would certainly second, is, uh, you know, these things have implications way beyond the narrow question of Ukraine and Crimea, way beyond even the bordering nations, all kinds of implications for NATO itself, and really for the world, because everyone's looking at this. And again, if this were happening in isolation, it's one thing. After Syria, after our withdrawals from Iraq and now from Afghanistan, uh, after the slashing of the defense budget, um, I mean, it's really a a terrible pattern that's been established over the last five years.
0: There was a tweet sent out by Howard Feynman, who I know a little bit, I assume you do, too, reporter Mm -hmm. of Newsweek or whatever it is. (laughs) left of it now about the academy awards and pointing out how you know 12 years a slave's victory is part of soft power and that this is part i'll just read it for you direct quote academy awards show diversity tolerance cultural creativity of u.s and obama era hard power matters per putin but oscars are just as powerful bill crystal are Victories for movies like Dallas Buyers Club, really as powerful as the Russian military pouring into eastern Ukraine?
1: I mean, I hadn't heard about that tweet, but it's is—it's going to, to the degree (laughs) it becomes famous, it'll become famous as an example of elite, I suppose, liberal elite, mostly, uh, in total denial about the real world. And, you know, in a fantasy land where uh, they can feel good about having a nice Oscar winner, that that makes up for... Flashing the defense budget or doing nothing <laughs> when, uh, when, when countries, when dictators invade neighboring countries. I mean, it is pathetic, and we'll probably look look back on statements like that the way we now look back on uh, statements in the 30s when the Oxford students, you know, right. vowed not to fight for their country. And but I think this was, is
0: bigger because I think Feynman is kind of fleshing out the notion that President Obama and the team around him apparently thought that simply by having him as president and simply yeah. by changing America's posture... That the desires and postures of other countries would change too. I was laughing over the weekend as John Secretary Kerry continued to tell Russia what was in Russia's best interest. It is not in their interest to do this. It is not in their interest to go to Crimea. It is not. And I'm thinking to myself, really? So you know Russia's interests better than Russia does?
1: No, you're absolutely right. Obama has that conceit; he knows Islam better than Muslims do, et cetera. But. Elliot Abrams has a very good piece up on the Weekly Standard website looking at Obama's interview with Jeffrey Goldberg which was done after the Russian invasion of Ukraine began and shows an Obama who with regard to Israel and Palestinians but with regard to everything with regard to the Middle East with regard to the world has learned nothing. I mean that's what's really scary. Uh, it really we called it on the website a scary interview right. with President Obama and it is scary. I mean Jimmy Carter whom we all, you know, sort of think is the the sort of nadir of American foreign policy in the last 70, 80 years. Jimmy Carter, after the Russians invaded Afghanistan, did increase defense spending, did try to rescue the hostages in Iran. and wasn't successful, but he did try. Uh, Acknowledge that the world wasn't the way he thought it was. And that was pretty explicit if you read Carter's State of the Union speech in 1980. Obama shows no sign of of, of, of having learned anything. I mean, literally, think of it. Is there one thing where where Obama has looked up and said, you know what, this isn't quite the way I thought it was. And that really is worrisome.
0: So what, if you're a, maybe, you say, a Chris Christie or a Rand Paul or a Bobby Jindal thinking about 2016, what is the smart thing for you to be saying today?
1: I think the smart thing is the right thing, which is to say this is terrible. And, you know, Republicans have a different view of America's role in the world, of our interests, of, of that hard power matters, not just the Oscars and so forth. I think it's interesting the last few days, though, and it heartens me that the Rand Paul side of the Republican Party has not been very, let's put it this way, there hasn't been a Rand Paul-like reaction Mm -hmm. among conservatives and Republicans to what's happened. Oh, it's none of our business. Putin was maybe provoked. We've got to be careful. Paul himself said that last week then he kind of reversed himself. The reaction really, the mainstream Republican and conservative reaction has been articulated by Marco Rubio very eloquently and by others as well. And I do think for those who worry the Republican Party was going into its own form of isolationism and Obama-like sort of wishfulness about the world, I actually think the Republican and conservative reaction has been pretty healthy.
0: And if you have Marco Rubio, whose family knew oppression firsthand uh, as one of the people out representing the Republican Party, it shows uh, that kind of cultural we get it, uh, you know, uh, political genome, if you will, that the party still has, even though it hasn't gotten much attention as of late.
1: Yeah, I agree with that. And I think, incidentally, Senators, I mean, Rubio's on the Foreign Relations Committee. It's appropriate, It's easier for, him to go to, easier for him to go to the floor and give a speech, more appropriate. But governors shouldn't sort of think to themselves, well, gee, I'm a governor. I don't have anything to say. I mean, Ronald Reagan had been a governor. He was a private citizen in 77, 78, 79. Didn't stop him from speaking about foreign policy <laughs> eloquently and often. Uh, and that's what helped establish his bona fides for, for the presidency. I think if you're Chris Christie or Bobby Jindal or Mike Pence or Scott Walker, and are thinking of running him for president, I think the voters in your state won't mind if you give a foreign policy speech every now and then or discuss these things. And I think it's actually important for these governors to show that they're, like Reagan, they may not have the kind of foreign policy experience someone in Washington has, but that they've thought a lot about this, and they have a, foreign po- a view of the world that's a contrast with Obama's.
0: Bill Crystal, thanks so much for your time and for your insights, and we will keep an eye on all of the coverage at the Weekly Standard throughout uh, the uh, this current mess, which I predict will not be ending anytime soon.
1: I'm afraid not. Thanks a lot, Michael.